This is a unlocked episode. Um, this is our very first premium episode. Um, to check out our other premium content, please go to patreon.com slash night rule. We'd love to have you over there. And it's always good to, uh, to have people supporting the show. So without any further ado, enjoy this special unlocked uh, episode. For our 14th night rule, it was uh, a lot of fun to speak with Professor Julie Rack of the University of Alberta. Um, she's a very uh, learned and very eloquent mind uh, that speaks on a lot of different topics related to uh, art and culture and society. Uh, and it was just a, a really great time to uh, converse for the hour with her. Today's intro track will be from Koshi Maharu. This song is called Satiricon. And our outro track will be from YMO. The name of this song is Perspective. And so without any further ado, this is Night Rule. According to the internet speed test, my, my speed should be about four times higher here in the living room. I don't know what an internet speed test is. I think that's when people do a bunch of speed and then tell you how fast your computer is or something. I suspect so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Welcome, everybody. Uh, we are on our 14th night rule, and we're very pleased to be joined by Professor uh, Julie Rack of the University of Alberta. She is the Henry Marshall Tory Chair in the Department of English and Film Studies. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Yeah, major areas of research and focus are autobiography, popular culture, life writing. Interested to hear your definition of life writing. Yeah. Um, very eloquent speaker on a lot of different topics, and uh, and we're very excited to uh, talk to her today for today's very special episode. So welcome, Julie. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Um, it's been been a while. Uh, I mean, um, you you may or may not have had a, a, a formative hand in um, a lot of uh, the development of my own personal thinking back at uh, the U of A, the real U of A. I mean, do, do you feel like U of A, uh, University of Alberta, and University of Arizona have like a little bit of a beef when it comes to them both being the U of A? 
that's a good question. I've been to the University of Arizona once and I would say that you uh, are probably right and that there is an underground rivalry <laughs> for supremacy in terms of our acronyms. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I think it's I think it's actually there. Um, so, I mean, there's so many things that we could talk about. I mean, maybe just to kick things off, I think I think it would be helpful for the audience to understand maybe a little bit about um, the work you do and, and your areas of expertise. And um, I know uh, when, when I was in your class all those many, many years ago, uh, you know, we, we talked a lot about, uh, I think we started off with semiotics. It was a critical theory class. We started off with semiotics. We passed through um, structuralism, post-structuralism, uh, psychoanalysis, Marxism, feminisms, yeah. um, you know, ended up uh, with people like Foucault, Derrida, Walter Benjamin, one, definitely one of the most difficult classes I think uh, I ever took, but it's definitely one of the most fascinating. Um, <laughs> but maybe just for, for the general audience, maybe you could say, maybe you could talk a little bit about how um, studying these kinds of uh, ideas, these systems of thought and applying them to an, an analysis of uh, a literature and culture. Um, what kind of, like, how, how useful has that been, you think, for, for academics over the last few decades? Sure. Um, okay, so yeah, the class that um, Isaac is talking about, and he was a good student, by the way, in case anyone's oh, thank you. wondering about it. <laughs> he did very well. Um, is uh, Sometimes I've heard people call it the quantum physics of the humanities. It's, um, it's a critical theory introduction course, and those are common at universities across um, you know, across the continent and certainly in Europe as well and in the United Kingdom. And what they are are courses where you learn to deal with abstract ideas that inform how we read literature and that can also help us research it. Um, and that can take a lot of forms. And so um, when I'm teaching this stuff, I um, critical theory draws on a lot of different kinds of uh, abstract thinking, and that can include from philosophy, from even from economics, uh, from you know gender studies, which actually came to be partly because of the work of critical theory, uh, something called formalism, where we study how literature is put together. Um, semiotics is actually something that thinks of itself as a science, even a social science. So we borrow from a lot of areas, really, in some ways, to be able to figure out how we bring everything to our reading and what our reading brings to us. And that's really what we're trying to do uh, when we're introducing those ideas. But it can feel a lot like a whirlwind tour and a roller coaster ride you might fall off of when you're in it because you're reading so many different kinds of things and, uh, and you're thinking about so many different kinds of things. But I often tell my students when I teach these kinds of courses, I love theory, I love ideas, and I do. I am very nerdy, I love all those things, um, and I think that ideas are actually what drives us. But what I would also say is that when we're thinking about uh, critical theory and we're thinking about what those ideas are, they're not just in the ivory tower all by themselves. In fact, critical theory can be the thing that is the most grounded. It can be the most connected to who you are, who you love, 
what your identity is. Why do you buy things you don't need, which is very important in a pandemic <laughs> to think about. <laughs> yeah, Why for sure. Do, you do that even when you shouldn't? <laughs> um, you know, critical theory can actually help you answer those kinds of questions for yourself and help you think in new ways. I just finished teaching an online course. It's one of my first online courses I've ever done. Like a lot of people, I'm in this new world. Uh, and it was on gender theory only, gender and sexuality theory only. And there were 70 students in there. And we talked about everything you can imagine because really, if you have a body, you have a gender. But what does it mean after that? Well, there's all sorts of ways to think about it. And they connect to literature too and, the, and uh, creative work. So that's really a little bit about what I think about critical theory. I, I loved that intro course. I don't get to teach anything quite like that anymore, but Isaac, you might be interested. We are actually trying to design a new intro theory course that's gonna look like that old one. It's actually gonna come back to thinking about a lot of the same things that were in there. With Fantastic. Some, with some changes because the world has changed. Uh, and keeps changing and and our ideas about it are changing. So critical theory remains important because uh, it it can help us track what's going on right now all around us. Mm, absolutely. Um, there's so 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 many places we could go, but I think maybe a good place to start um, is maybe to talk about how, I mean, you know, everything we're talking about in terms of uh, or much of what we're talking about here um, is is new. Uh, you know, it's kind of in the 20th century onwards, obviously some of it stretches a little further back, but yeah. um, can we maybe to kind of help people understand why there's uh, kind of so much useful terrain here um, in critical mm. theory, we can talk about what what, what was kind of the, the main mode of literary analysis or some of the main modes of literary analysis that preceded it and maybe oh, yeah. how were they, what, what, how can we identify maybe the remnant of that kind of old tradition? I mean, I'm thinking about things like, you know, the intention of the author and, and whatnot. Oh, yeah, even before that. So really, when we're talking about when we say the words critical theory, and if you have listeners who have done any work in sociology or political science, they would understand that term differently. They would say it's social theory, that's what or political theory. But we say critical theory, and that is partly because we think that there is a positionality and an ethics to what we're doing there. So it's not just learning about the world, we're also taking positions, and that's why critical is part of it. But it's also because the story of English studies um, is involves criticism, and the idea of criticism is actually like book reviewing criticism or film criticism, okay? So when English studies started, it wasn't really a discipline that studied things. What it had was people who worked at places like Oxford or Cambridge in Britain, right, who were studying languages that were not Latin or Greek, okay? And, and were studying um, works that were written in languages that were not classical languages, okay? Which is where we get the idea of ancient languages that you study and moderns, modern languages is comes actually from that idea. Right. And English was one of those. But what people did then was quite different. They would write articles, you know, beautifully worded articles about um, about a piece of writing about it, and they would review things. It was like they were theater reviewers, but they were like book reviewers. And that's pretty much what people thought English studies was in the 19th century. It was about um, ideas of taste and that you could create an idea of judgment where you could decide what good or bad writing was, okay? Uh, and, in, and that's really the late 19th century version of this. 
And then everything changes because of World War I. World War I is the thing that creates um, a sense among the generation that survived that the old ways of doing things, the old things, um, needed to be gotten rid of, right? Because the values that had given rise to this huge war in which so many people died, so many people suffered, so many people in Europe particularly were affected by the war because that's where the war took place. It went on for so long. It was very clear to many of the people that had survived that war that the imperial powers who were giving the orders weren't sitting in the trenches with them. Right. And so they were being sent out to kill people for reasons that seemed a bit dubious. Right. To say the least. And and a lot of people ask themselves, what value is the old world anyway? What value does it have if this is what it leads to? Right. And, you know, some of those questions are being asked right now. So it's interesting to think about it back then. Sure. Yeah, sure. So one of the things that happened was that the old way of understanding English studies changed. Um, there were two critics. They were actually uh, they were actually life partners, um, F. R. Levis and Q. Uh, Q. Queenie Levis actually is her name. Q. D. Levis, and they worked at I think they worked at Cambridge. I'm going to get this wrong, and then all the Cambridgeians are going to come back and go, no, it was Oxford, but I think it was Cambridge. And they and they were they were in English studies, and what they did was they developed a way of analyzing English texts and connecting them to the idea of being a British person in the modern world. And that is really the beginning, right at that point, right in the right after World War One, that English studies becomes what we recognize today, where you're not just, you know, and the idea of close reading, this concept that you read texts really carefully to see what they say, that you look at their form and what kind of messages a form sends as well as the as well as the ideas in the text, that came from them. And they really are the people who um, who helped to invent contemporary English studies. And something similar is happening in other places. In France, the development of structuralism, that you can study the structure of writing and how things are put together and get meaning from that. That, was a, that came into literary studies from anthropology. And at the same time in Russia, there was a movement to also study form um, and, and not just read biographically. So instead of just reading for like, what does the author think, which is called intention, okay? So that's that, you were mentioning that Isaac. So that was the intentional, the intention that you could, if you read a work, you can see what the author is thinking. And a good example of how that doesn't always help you is Harry Potter and the author of Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling. You could say that you are reading Harry Potter and you could see what J.K. Rowling thinks and feels, but we know that's not true because the fandom that grew up around Harry Potter actually interprets those texts quite differently from the way J.K. Rowling thinks. And J.K. Rowling's ideas, which are quite conservative, don't always work their way through Harry Potter. So you can't, you, you must be reading Harry Potter for some other reason than just understanding the mind of the author, okay? Another example of that um, in the 1940s was um, J.R. Tolkien, who was an English professor and a linguist. 
And Tolkien wrote an, a very famous essay about the poem Beowulf. And he said in there, he argued that Beowulf should be read under its own merits and not trying to guess what the author was thinking because we don't even know who the author was, right? right. So we don't even know, so who cares? And it's a little bit like, do we know anything about Shakespeare? We actually don't know that much about him. We know some things about him, but we really can't read Shakespeare's plays or go see them and guess what he's thinking. And so the, the discipline of English began to really decide to move away from that guess what he's thinking or guess what she's thinking kind of way. Although it's always been there and I don't think it's really gone away. Um, you know, and, and I think it is a way to read. Like, I'm not saying you can't read like that, but it's, it, in some cases, it's just not going to help you understand what's going on in a work of writing. So that's really where it all comes from. And so how are you going to read then if what you're going to do is be in this modern world and you're going to read these things and think about them carefully and you're going to think about how they're put together and how that connects to your meaning and that is really what we're still doing um, all these decades later but really english studies as we know it and even theory as we know it in english studies was born in that time it was born there and it was born in europe the united kingdom and uh russia I would say probably those three places were the most important places where that yeah. work started to happen. And, uh, and not as much in the United States or Canada where English studies really develops much later and in a different way. I think it's, I mean, if you're just, if you're gonna go around and interpreting everything just according to your own imagined intention mm -hmm. of the author, it's such a, that's such a bland and kind of top-down way to interact with like any piece of art. Like, uh, I mean, I think, yeah. For sure, like like you say, it's still there's still valid there's still validity in in that approach. But you know, opening up the discussion to um, you know the 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 greater place the the work has in in history and in society and yeah, all these there's there's all these. I've always been fascinated by the different lenses. I often think about um, there was an edition uh, a friend of mine had of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And it oh. had three really interesting essays at the at the back that each had a different kind of critical lens that it was looking at the work through. The first one was Lacanian psychoanalysis. The second was uh, a Marxist reading, and the third was kind of just a more traditional close reading. Yeah. Um, and I think each one brought uh, its own kind of interesting stuff uh, to the forefront. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that Frankenstein as a novel is one of the, I mean, I love teaching that novel and I work in contemporary writing a lot of the time and I still love it um, because I think it has so many different things to say to our different times. Like imagine right now, Frankenstein has a lot to say about contagion and a lot to say about science and ethics. And it's, I mean, those things are still topical, even though that novel was published in 1818 in its first version, right? Yeah. And so interesting, right? But yeah, if you were just reading, like when Frankenstein first came out, it was, it was authored anonymously. And so people thought when they were reviewing it that a man wrote it because women weren't supposed to be able to write things about ideas. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> not, not like that, you know? And so, I mean, even studying that, you know, like you can't guess the intention of the author when when 
when it's anonymous and when people make mistakes about what gender that person is. And you can certainly read that novel a lot of ways and you should read it even, you know, for pleasure too, right? Like, I mean, that's a valid way to read something, but there, but then you can't just do anything with that. Like you just say, well, I like it or I hate it, or I'm excited like you would in your book club or something. And that's fine, but that's not going to, that's not going to yield up everything the text has to give you or that you give it so it you have to go somewhere else other than just to uh, just to think about whether you like it or not and just to think about whether the author had some thoughts in their head about it like a lot of people read it and think oh mary shelley you know her she had these famous parents and they were um, revolutionaries and there's a lot of revolutionary ideas in frankenstein and and that's true, um, but she was also a novelist of ideas, and she was, and she read the science of her time. She was really interested in the science of vitalism. So shouldn't we know about vitalism, right? Mm. So then we're going on a journey that takes us away from that, um, from that first way to read. And uh, sometimes students don't want to go on that journey. They want to stay in the, they want to stay in the place of I love it or I hate it or you know that. And there's nothing wrong with staying there if you want to. But there's so much more out there. That's what I like to tell people. There and really is. Theory can help with a with a text like that. Lacanian psychoanalysis for your audience is a very specialized um, theoretical approach that comes from the discipline of psychoanalysis. And one of its practitioners, Lacan, from the 19 lived in the 19. 1950s, uh, really, that's when most of his work was done, 50s and 60s, and uh, and so it's quite a while ago now. But like the psychoanalysis can really help to um, understand what motivations mean and whether we really even know our deepest motivations or know ourselves. And that part of psychoanalysis really does map pretty well onto that novel where people are doing things and they have no idea why they're doing them. <laughs> mm. Right? Yeah, um, for sure. Why does Frankenstein build this creature that's really, really too large? Like, why does he build the world's biggest man? <laughs> <laughs> why yeah. do you think he did that? And why did he just, and why did he abandon his creation, you know, and, and, you know, and all of that, you know, and he's not even completely sure what he's doing. So in that sense, psychoanalysis really helps, but so do other things. So yeah, it's yeah. a great example. Yeah. Um, and I'm just trying to take a page out of, out of what I learned um, mm -hmm. studying in that class. Uh, and I think this probably, this probably comes from structuralism, but I think also from um, post-colonial studies and feminisms mm -hmm. and stuff where, because I, I think, I've, and this really changed how I viewed a lot of storytelling. Like uh, I think, I think it's pretty easy for people to look at a story and say, like, say there's a character in it that's a person of color or a woman and they're yeah. a sympathetic character. So you kind of assume, okay, well, this is a sympathetic portrayal. Therefore this is pro person of color, or pro woman. Um, but then in the structure of the actual story, um, like say, for example, uh, in this Twilight Zone episode, I'm going to talk, be talking about with Ben later. Um, mm. The female character has a violent end at the at the, at the end of the story. Oh yes. And I, I think that's a really interesting question of and, and, and there's a lot of montages you can look up on YouTube of of the black guy being the first to die is another great example mm. of it. Oh, and yeah. you know those are those characters are usually sympathetic. So it's it's it helped me to kind of realize that that the kind of surface level interpretation of these characters and this story. Is definitely not going far enough, and 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 we should look at things like how what how does this character's story actually end? Exactly, and and what is that, and what what are the limits to that story? Another example um, would be uh, you know from television, 
Um, the, the television show Will and Grace is often hailed as a groundbreaking show um, around queer issues, JLBTQ plus issues, right? Um, but really is it? Because if you start to think about it, all you never see anything sexualized occur in the show. Will is just the best friend of a straight girl. Mm. And they're both white people too. And they live in that same TV apartment, that middle-class TV apartment that we all get to watch all the time with the sofa in front, you know? And mm. so if we're going to be able to understand how groundbreaking was that, it wasn't actually um, very groundbreaking. It, it kept, uh, it basically made Will into a pet for a straight person. Sure. And, and he doesn't ever get to really have, he doesn't get to be gay really. He just, he acts the way that straight people think that gay people act. And uh, or should act, and and there's other characters who are more um, who are more flamboyant. Who who also Jack, right? I think it's Jack is the other guy. Right, Jack is a good example of that. Um, you know, but they're but they're not the main character. They're not the title character. The title character is clearly the is clearly the ideal. And so in that sense, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, you know, is that the you know has there has anything happened in that show, and what's happened is containment. And so, yeah, you I think you have to use the critical tools available to you to be able to go a little bit beyond the surface ideas, including, yeah, why do so many black characters seem to not survive in the white worlds that are built for them? How many how many shows do we even have where there aren't any white characters? Why do black characters always have to exist in in reference to white characters, right? You know and mm -hmm. And um, you know everyone loves Black Panther because Black Panther has um, an analysis of that where the white character is really minor. There's one, and and he doesn't know what's going on. Sure. <laughs> you know, it's a real fantasy, isn't it? You know, where you can just say, "Go away, white man. You really are not that important to me, and you're going to serve me." You know, I mean, if that's the real fantasy of Black Panther. And so, in that sense, you know, to be able to think about, well, not even just why is this character having such an end in their story, but also what role are they actually playing in that whole narrative? anyway what is the narrative's idea of itself hmm. that's uh, me that needs to have these kind of characters appear and disappear and so yeah that's that's part of what looking at the way structure works that's where that's what that can do and it certainly is what something like semiotics could do to just help you see that absolutely mm -hmm. um now when when people are kind of struggling with the difficult texts that one might encounter um, on this pursuit, um, like, for example, yeah. I know there's probably some people in the audience that are currently in a, a reading group uh, working through Marx's uh, Das Kapital, which oh. um, is, I, I think, actually, like, pretty beautifully written once you can kind mm -hmm. of understand the ideas. But but if you don't understand the ideas, it's probably pretty impenetrable. It's the kind of thing where you almost need to read the whole thing to kind of understand where to even start. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I remember one. I remember one thing you mentioned in the class back in the day that that's really stuck with me was this this idea that you know people look at social sciences and and quote unquote uh, kind of hard sciences differently, and they say, well, you know, I'm I'm not going to expect a non physicist to be able to comment well on physics, but I, I expect anyone walking down the street to mm -hmm. somehow be able to comment uh, as eloquently as anyone on things like culture and the interpretation of literature and and yes. society and and. I think I think it's really important that we um, that people understand that there there is a lot of nuance and there's a lot of complexity and and studying culture and studying yeah. different approaches to history and philosophy is is a, a difficult pursuit. So um, yeah. we, we should kind and, of embrace the complexity, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, dare I say, lean into it. 
Yeah, just because something's written in the same language that you speak every day doesn't mean that you're going to immediately understand it, right? That's I think that's what's really important there. So you're yeah. right. That is what I said back in the day, and I'll still say it too. It's like if there's expect nobody ever expects mathematicians to be able to immediately explain their explain what they're doing, right? We, in fact, um, if you think about the way that mainstream film pictures genius, they often picture mathematicians as geniuses who have unknowable knowledge. So they write on the blackboard or they write on a whiteboard and they're writing their formula. And it's like, it's, you know, in the, you know, like say the a beautiful mind, that film, you know, and, and we all understand that that's genius because we can't access it. Right. But you never, but, but, you know, it's assumed that in the humanities, everything needs to be immediately accessible. And so, yeah, there are particularly critical theorists who've been held to account for that. Das Kapital is a really great example, actually, um, of this of this situation. I should say, by the way, that I did um, in a later on in time after you were a student in that intro class, I actually teach a class on class and ideology theory. And I actually did make my students read part of Das Kapital, you know, awesome. and, I, and I slowed it down so that they would be, they would learn to read slowly and carefully. And we would take passages and we would really try to understand what is he trying to say about something like the commodity, which is a really famous part of the book, right? Um, yeah, it kind of kicks off the whole analysis. It does and it and yeah. it really depends his view of commodity is really important to get at and they read a lot of other things around the around the text so that they could understand what Marx was doing and and it's really important that that they know that because Marx wasn't writing Das Kapital to be immediately accessible he was writing it because he was he it's a work of economic theory right and so of course it has technical language in it that's going to take a bit to understand. And he also, you know, he, you know, he was also not an English speaker. That wasn't his first language. And he was a German speaker. And so he wrote that way, right? So the verbs are always at the end of these really long sentences, you know. And so even getting used to that way of thinking about things, really, even though he wrote Das Kapital in London when, you know, in the British Library, he, he went there every day and he wrote it there. Um, you know, it, and he wrote it about London. He wrote it about the things that he was seeing around him, the excesses of the industrialization of the place. He was, this was what was really making him interested, right? Child labor, things like that. That was really what he was thinking about. Mm. But he was, but he is not writing this as a, you know, as in, in like, you know, in, in easy to read things. He wrote other things that were meant to be like that, like the, you know, the German ideology or, um, you know, even the communist manifesto that he wrote. Um, with someone else, right? You know, he's, those are the things that he wrote so that everyone could see what he was saying. But this is his deep dive. And yeah, we have to go into that deep dive. And it's just like regular diving. You have to learn, you have to get skills, you have to get equipment, and you have to go in there knowing what the risks are. <laughs> and I think that's true too, for totally. kinds of text. And, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's actually good for our minds. It's good for our minds to work on things. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, my mind's been slowly degraded and, and devalued by uh, years of television, but I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to turn things around a little bit. Um, now I know uh, but one, another, another topic I'm really curious for your thoughts on, like, I mean, honestly, you know, I learned so much in that class. I learned, I, I learned probably my first real introduction to like feminist, uh, writing and analysis and, and, 
Right. So immediately the understanding of the different waves of feminism and the, the differences mm. between the different types and whatnot. Um, and I feel as though back in whatever year it was now, uh, oh gosh. Gen gen gender theory and gender studies was didn't really have a, a prominent kind of cultural place as it does now. Although I honestly feel as though a lot of it has been co-opted and um, yeah. it's kind of become and, and performative is a word you taught me as well that I think gets really misused, but it's become this performative thing online and there's this representational kind of neoliberal politics that is, is there's some, I think feel like there's a lot of tokenism and whatnot. And I feel like it really detracts from the value um, that, that a lot of gender theory and studies has, have, have brought um, to, to the culture at large. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I feel as though I don't know. It's just, it's been a long time and I want, I want your thoughts for kind of wow. the state of all that right now. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Well, you know, one of the most interesting things, um, and I'm trying to think of when um, I got to be your instructor. It was, it was probably in the 2002. early. Yeah. yeah. 2002. And um, I mean, here we are and it's 20 years later. So of course things have changed and some of them for the better. So one of the things that I think, um, has changed is the idea of intersectionality has become very important to feminism and is really important to gender theory. And it, for your audience out there, um, intersectionality is a, is a word that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's an African-American um, theorist and critic. And it's um, a word that expresses that you're not just one identity. So you might have gender identity as something important to you, but then you'll have another part of your identity, let's say your racial identity, or your, whether you're able-bodied, or whether you are disabled, or your class position, or other things about you are all going to connect together, and they are intersectional. And so our analysis of social problems should also be intersectional. And that really wasn't part of the early 2000s. Um, Crenshaw writes that later. And I, and I mean, somebody like Audre Lorde would have always said the same thing, right? Um, Audre Lorde would always, the African-American poet, she wouldn't have said she was African-American, my apologies, she would have said she was a black poet and she would have said she was a black lesbian feminist poet and that she was working class. <laughs> That's what she'd say. And she has said it. But um, Kimberly Crenshaw made it possible to kind of move um, Audre Lorde's thinking and the thinking of other black theorists particularly and say, you know what? Gender theory has to change because it's too white. Right, so that's one thing that I think is changing. Um, and that um, indigenous theory, the idea that indigenous people have their own traditions and their own ways of knowing and their own ways of doing work and that those are left out of a lot of gender theory, right? Like gender theory um, originated uh, from Europe and North America really. And it often has biases in it, right? That don't take account of other ways of thinking, being, and knowing. And I really think that in the last, particularly the last five to 10 years, there's been a real shift around that and a growing understanding that we can't just act like that's what we're gonna do anymore. So today when I teach gender theory, I actually teach it quite differently from the way that I did in the early 2000s for that reason. And the other reason is the advent of trans theory. So trans people, trans lives, and trans reality have, and were not taken into account inside of gender theory or even queer theory very in, in very effective or even respectful ways. 
and the advent of um, trans studies approaches that are not connected to the others that try to explore things in their own right, that's really changed too. And I think it's changed um, more than just any kind of lip service that people pay to whose identities people have and that kind of thing. I think it's also um, changed the way that we understand knowledge. Right. And so um, I actually just went through teaching a gender theory course where it was really, really different. I taught it with a friend of mine, actually. So we team taught it, which really changed it. Um, but we also um, really wanted to talk with our students about what does gender mean now? And I think that students now, actually younger people now, know a lot more than I did at their age about what gender is and what its possibilities are, that there isn't just two genders, for example, or even three. There's what gender is isn't always attached to the bodies that we have. And I mean, I always kind of knew it, but they actually are better than I was <laughs> at living that out. But where they don't always have connections is to try to make that come circle back, those understandings of gender and not just have it be, there's a million genders and you can just pick them. Because as you know from reading Judith Butler's performativity ideas. It's not about making choices. Sometimes those choices are made for you. You're not exactly. always in total control of your identity. And you and you're in fact it's very seldom that you really have agency in many situations. Right. Um, so and you can see that even in American politics right now, you can see a bunch of, you know, mostly white men, some white women who go into some big government building and they say, we have agency, we can do whatever we want. It's really clear that they don't actually. <laughs> right? mm, yeah. Well, that's one of the things that worries me um, when I yeah. look at um, like on on Twitter and some of these more kind of lip servicey performative type um, yeah. statements and kind of among the political classes and the, and the commentariat. I mean, I, I worry that with um, the advent of kind of neoliberalism and, and mm -hmm. the supremacy of, of kind of uh, finance and capital, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I worry that that we're gonna see this kind of version of neoliberalism where it says, okay, well, you can't have any of the economic uh, advantages you really need, but we're going to give you, you know, um, you're gonna get some representation. So the cabinet will be diverse, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I feel I feel like that that's really going to hurt um, like the long term yep. project of, of any kind of progressive political agenda. Sure. I mean, to bring it a little closer to home, you know, so like you can do a Justin Trudeau, you can say, oh, I'm going to make my cabinet really multicultural and diverse and reflective of Canada. And then I'm really not going to pay attention when they start to actually advocate for things that they should get. <laughs> and yeah. then I'm going to fire some of them. And, uh, and then I'm not going to do the things that I said I was going to do. So that's why we don't, you know, there's still not really potable water on the, you know, on the reserves. Yeah. Every child in our country gets to have potable water as part of their reality because clearly lip service. Right. But, you know, here's here's Justin Trudeau, but I'm still a feminist and I'm still this and that. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, spare me. <laughs> Along comes Greta Turnberg to say, spare me. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I, and I just think, yeah. So it's you can say you're all woke and lip service and pay it all and whatever. And you're quite right. Um, if you don't have a really good base analysis of how does how does capitalism work? How does neoliberalism actually work? If, if you don't have that understanding of that, you will get, it's very, very easy to get co-opted. Um, capitalism is amazing at adapting. It's as good as, it's, it's as good as the coronavirus. It can, it can adapt and spread itself no matter what you do. Yeah. <laughs> it is very, very hard to say no to.
So I do think that one thing I think that's a really good antidote to that kind of, you know, performing your, your commitments without really having any um, is uh, Sarah Ahmed's work. And I do teach a lot of that now. I think she is actually someone who speaks to younger feminists. Um, I have been amazed at the power she has to talk with younger people about ethics and commitments and, and what do you, what should you be fighting for right now? And what should things mean to you? And I, and I, you know, I, I read her books and think, I know these things, but you know what? Um, she's not talking to me. She's talking to people much younger than I am. And I am excited to get to present those ideas to students and then they can do what they want with them. They can do whatever they want. They can read whatever they want, you know, and they can read some things by feminists of color. They can read, they can read black thinkers and they, and they can do things that I couldn't even have imagined. And that's why I'm still a teacher too, right? That's because uh, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you could end up on somebody's radio show. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't worry. No one's listening to this. Um, uh, I know, uh, well, we can start the wind down procedure. I know you got to go here, but we'll get a few more yeah. questions in. Um, sure. So good to have you on mic for sure. Like, I think, uh, honestly, there's probably like a million more things we could talk about. So I'll have to goad you at some point. Oh, I would come, be delighted. I really, I would. Um, if um, I can be helpful, I will. Oh, you, you're, you've already you've already been very, very helpful, believe me. Um, I wanted to ask you because it's it's kind of a question that's on my mind. And I talked about it with our last guest, um, the brilliant rapper, Napoleon de Legend, um, who has a lot of political uh, themes in his work. But one thing I think he does a great job of avoiding is kind of a preachy kind of um, just mm -hmm. uh, just kind of like really like this is this is what to think. And I think when you look at a writer, like look at someone like Marx, I mean, Marx would have hated, and I've heard many people say this, he would have hated any kind of preachy, you know, here, we're going to teach you a lesson type work of art. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I think you can really look at a lot of work created under in the current in the current society. Um, and even even mainstream stuff, and you can kind of see a critique of capitalism in a lot of it, I feel as though, or there's the subtext of, of uh, there's there's a subtextual critique of of you know say the commodification of everything and whatnot like I'm going to be talking about Twilight Zone later with Ben and oh, there's, a, there's a great episode called What You Need where the main character is kind of this psychic guy who carries around a little suitcase full of odds and ends you know he can sell people matches or whatever they need but but ultimately there's a big underlying theme of about how you know he's this seller of goods who really can't give ever anyone what they truly need so to speak mm -hmm. um, and. And then, you know, that's not something that's written with an eye to try and trying to give people some kind of class, class consciousness or, or a different view of history, but it still seeps in. Um, and yeah. I, I, do you think, like, like, what can you say about, about what you've seen in your studies of literature and, and culture in terms of kind of the subconscious uh, elements that seem to emerge that may not even be, you know, we talked about this before, the author themselves might not even be aware of it. Wow, that's a huge question, right? Like it's true. I mean, because it gets at so many things. It gets at what is representation about, and it gets at what are those layers, and also what is what is art for, and what you know, and and what is art? What does art do? And are there things that art does that are in the world that are of the world and that really comment on those things, right? And and uh, it's also about unconscious representation, right? Like what's you know the when we say well, what's really going on, right? with that kind of stuff. And so, I mean, that's, that's huge. I don't even know how to answer. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll have to just, we'll, we'll consider that an appetizer for the next one. Yeah. But what I would say is like, there's two, there's two things I always say when I think about this kind of question. Uh, one is that 
does art matter? And the answer is yes, as much as anything, right? <laughs> and mm. I think that in the end, you know, um, we could never, if we, that what neo, what neoliberal people want, and particularly what, if you're thinking in Marxist terms, what elites want, what they want is a world without, where art doesn't matter. They want that world. Mm. They want a world where it's just entertainment and where things don't matter and they don't, they don't like being critiqued. So they don't want art to do that. And so, and so I'm like, fine, then I am always, always backing art that will do that. That will provide another way to see, another way out, another way to think. Because if we don't, because in societies where that's been eliminated, those are totalitarian societies. So that's usually what I arrive at when I think about that. I think all, all signification matters. All signification has a politics. There's no way it doesn't. It's not like there's a neutral place and then you get to be there. Mm. But I also think whenever anybody tries to eliminate those kinds of expressions, right? When, when art doesn't do the work that it should do, we're usually in trouble. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's all, uh, probably not a good answer for what you really want. No, it's a, no, no it's a, <laughs> I mean, I probably asked a question that has like a 45 minute answer, but I think, yeah. I think you're, I think it's a good, it's a good response for sure. And we can, we can pick up that discussion when we have more time too. Sure. Um, Listen, I know you're on Twitter. I'm, 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 I'm sad to see that you're on there. I hope, I hope it's not too much of a play pit for you. What's your, what's your handle in case people want to follow you? Um, it is at Rack Doctor. So R A K D R. I think, I, I think I might have an underscore in it, but I'm not sure. No, there is, there is an underscore. Yeah, R A K underscore D R. Um, I am on Twitter, but not as much as I once was, and that's partly because I was part of a pushback against the uh, fire, uh, a pushback against the UBC Accountable Movement. Uh, and that's because I was out to support students and complainants at the University of British Columbia because I feel that students were not being heard. And because of that, I was part uh, for two to three years, I was part of a really uh, consistent activist effort. And I was on Twitter as part of that, um, but I was trolled pretty hard along with other people who were involved with that. And so I had to take a bit of a break, but I do come back. I do come back to Twitter and I would be happy to talk to anybody on there about any of these ideas or others. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're a wealth of knowledge in a, in a lot of different ways, Julie. So um, I'm hoping I'm hoping when, uh, your, when your schedule allows, we can have you back maybe sometime in February and we can collaborate, maybe get into some more like specific uh, projects and whatnot. Absolutely, um, we yeah, it'd be super fun. Um, well, yeah, why don't uh, I should I know you have another class starting in a bit here and you need yeah. a little bit of a, a timeout. So uh, I'll just thank you again for taking the time. So nice to reconnect. And uh, I guess I guess you could say uh, the class all those years ago had an impact on me. Eh? I think so. And and you know what? Um, I don't always know when that happens. I, I always feel like I'm part of a long chain. You know, learning is being part of somebody's learning is one of the best reasons to be alive. And so Isaac, I'm really, I'm super proud of you and what you've done. And um, I'm glad that um, I was even a little part of that story. Really I am. You really were, yeah. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad now you know. So uh, I'll be in touch, okay. enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, yeah. hopefully the cat's all fed and you guys uh, are, are hunkered <laughs> down and well supplied. Yeah, seems like it's okay. And let's watch all the rest of it unfold. And thank you so much. And I wish you very well with Night Rule.
Hope you guys enjoyed that. I'm sure you did. I know I certainly did. Um, just a reminder to check out our other premium episodes. We got a couple of them now, with, uh, one with Ben Burgess, one with Professor Adnan Hussein. We got some cool mixtapes up there for, uh, for those of you that enjoy the music. Um, you can just check that all out on patreon.com slash nightroll. Please enjoy responsibly.